today I'm talking to Elizabeth Knox, the New Zealand fantasy author, um, perhaps best known in the UK for her book, The Absolute Book, which she wrote in 2019, but which was published in the UK in 2021. And before that, her best known book was probably The Vintner's Luck from 1998 and its sequel, The Angel's Cut in 2009. And so we're delighted to be talking to Elizabeth here this morning. So Elizabeth, why did you choose the fantasy genre for this particular book? Ah, well, I had I had always wanted to try to write a book like one of the the books of my life. I read it when I was 16. Um, Mikhail Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita. Uh, which is a fantasy book and also a political satire and a number of other things and a book set in Moscow in the late 1920s and it was written in the 1930s but wasn't published until the 1960s and and the first time it was published was published outside Russia of course because it was one of those well he, he had displeased Stalin so but the thing is about this book is that it that it kind of um, swaps between telling the story of Pontius Pilate and telling the story of some unhappy people in Moscow. And it has witches in it and it has the devil and it has, you know, a demon who's a large black cat. And it's kind of, it's just a wild book, but it's wild and it's grand and it's funny and it's silly and it's sort of meaningful and pertinent. And I'd always thought, I wanted to try to write a book that had that sort of sense of mixed tone and wildness to it. And I didn't have a way to get into it, though I knew I wanted to put fairyland in it, my idea of fairyland. Mm. And um, I knew I wanted it to end up being kind of um, a a book with a hidden intention, but I didn't have a way in. And then I, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine about a genre of books uh, that we were calling arcane thrillers, things like Dan Brown, the the book with the scholarly hero. And I suddenly thought, aha, that's my way in. And um, that's that's how I got to that book. Um, I'd always wanted to write a book that did the kind of things that it did in terms of um, going out wide and then it, it, it seems to proliferate, but everything comes back again. So a kind of a, a a mystery where that 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 had an inclusive mystery, but the way into it had to be like an arcane thriller. That's a wonderful way of describing the the different tones, and we're we're keen to avoid too many spoilers here. So I won't ask you to to rehearse the plot, um, but I think that explains quite a lot. Your your reference to Bulgakov there because. I, the moment you said it, I thought, yeah, that's absolutely the kind of thing that Master and Margarita is all about, isn't it? So was that beyond Bulgakov? What were your fantasy influences when you were growing up? What did you read? Everything, really. <laughs> but um, Well, because on the age I am, the, the fantasy that I was first getting was young adult fantasy, writers, writers of fantasy and science fiction. And I can remember that I... I loved Ray Bradbury, who my father introduced me to, uh, but on the less classy but but 
all very exciting for a young person. Um, Andre, Andre Norton, so mm -hmm. the American writer, who the prize is now named after the young adult um, fantasy fiction oh, prize. So I loved Andre Norton. And then, of course, like everybody else around about that time, I discovered a Shirley Le Guin, first through the Earthsea Chronicles, uh, like lots of young people, and then uh, The Left Hand of Darkness and The Dispossessed and so on. And I wasn't distinguishing between fantasy and science fiction because I knew I loved both. So if I was reading Ursula Le Guin's science fiction, uh, the thing that I was loving about it and the fantasy without distinguishing was how involved with the real natural world they were. I mean, how deeply physical and embodied her fiction is. So I just think those were the things that formed my tastes pretty much. And then, of course, you know, it was Samuel Delaney and <laughs> so on. <laughs> so that interest in science fiction stayed with you then? Because I, I know, speaking from my own experience, and it's something I think quite a lot of young women say, is that they sort of enjoy science fiction quite a lot up until they become adolescent. And then... Maybe it's the kind of science fiction that's really all about spacecraft and, and kind of highly technical and has really sort of a, a simple adventure plot and everything depends on rules around time bending and so on, um, that they lose that kind of taste for science fiction. And I must say that I loved Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea um, chronicles, but I never got around to reading any of her science fiction until the last year or so, and I've been guzzling it down. I think it's absolutely fantastic. <laughs> it... yeah, that's, that's, some of these things, you don't know where they are. I, I think that's partly the problem is, is you need to kind of, you need good readers to point you not just in the general direction of science fiction, but in the more specific directions like the, the, the science fiction that has an interest in sort of anthropological things like um I mean Orson Scott cards not very popular at the moment but those those ender stories um a speaker for the dead and so on are incredibly good at creating different beings and it's it's not about it is partly about the technology but but even the even the AI it's about the soul of the AI that that you know the ender the stories about people and about different ways of looking at the world so I think I think I don't know whether it's girl readers or just readers who want their science fiction to be really about people even if the people are trees yeah yeah I <laughs> yeah. think that's right I think the the anthropological training that Le Guin had and I think both her parents are anthropologists as well yes. really allows her to create all those different kinds of, of people in really quite densely imagined worlds. So was Le Guin someone you felt you were speaking back to in some ways in, in this book? Or are the influences that you were kind of pushing against too, too many to count? Well, there are no, there are always specific people that I, that I feel like I'm talking to one way or another. And it isn't that they're like me. It's just that um, I think I approve of the uh, ambition when it comes to thinking about what genre can do. Like you, 
Ursula Le Guin determinedly understands that genre, that literature appears in all genres and that literary fiction is only a genre. So um, if you get that kind of healthy frame of mind, you can be ambitious for, you know, all the things like beauty and um, depth and so on in your genre work. So I think I'm always thinking of people like her and Philip K. Dick and but specifically with that book, I was thinking of two things. The first was Mikhail Bulgakos, The Master of Margarita, and the other one was Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh-huh. Because of the mixed tone in that, because it can be so incredibly grand and beautiful and moving and silly and funny and, you know, full of action and full of character. And it was it was the kind of this this the scope of not just taking one tone and going, all right, this is a drama, so it will be dramatic. Um, it's like I had, I I understand why people like the Scandi Noirs, for instance, television series, but I don't really like them myself because they're they they're just they're just they don't make you laugh, <laughs> and I don't That's require true. things to make me laugh. But I kind of think that you can make people worry and. Um, and feel horror and and um, be moved and make them laugh all in the same thing. That's really important, I think, to to get that sort of variety of tone. I know exactly what you mean about Scandi Noir, which I have to confess I'm quite addicted to. <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, can you tell us a bit about the the secondary worlds that you created for the Absolute Book? Because um, it's it's a really capacious sort of universe, isn't it? And I know that you've you've taught a course on world building at Victoria University in the past, uh, so you must have thought quite a lot about the the secondary world. Um, can you tell us a bit about what your thinking was when you were creating that version of Fairyland? Well, I wanted it. I mean, Fairyland, as in, I was thinking you know, where the fairies are like elves, you know, that they're beautiful and forbidding and very, very pleased with themselves and heartless. And so they've got all that going on, but they live in the most beautiful world where they care for their world and they care for each other and they care for the human beings who are living with them. And and they're sort of hunter-gatherers and they're at one with nature so they're admirable in very many ways, but then they have this business with the tithe where they take, they they have the, these these taken people with these wonderful lives they lead. And then every, every hundred years, they have to give souls to hell. And so they, they give their people well, more than a hundred years, but they do eventually just funnel them onto hell in order to pay for the rent basically on the land that they have but I, I sort of wanted to make it a plot like mm. they had that they had that problem with hell because hell could take the land back because they took the land originally <laughs> so it's um you know it's kind of a, a colonial thing that the demons of hell are dispossessed from the land that the fairies are now occupying so it's it's complicated like that and that's the that's the insoluble problem that that's in the book. The the well, there are a number of insoluble problems, and, and you know, one of them is the problem that we have. But 
our real problem of the fact that we're destroying the planet, but they have this problem of being stuck in this treaty that makes them into brutes. So they're very pleased with themselves. They live wonderful civilized lives and they're brutes. And so, they look um, away all the time. From yeah, what and they look really away. Doing. They have, yeah. in order to survive, they have to not think too hard about what it is that they have to do. Um, and yeah, I wanted to make it as difficult as possible for them to get out of that situation and for it to be not entirely resolved, though the resolution to all of that is sort of built into the book, but I, I left all the clues in there so that, you know, certain readers will be able to, if they started thinking about various things, they'll go, oh, oh you could do that, you could do this, you could do, because I quite like doing that, leaving a few clues, breadcrumbs. And the idea of the tithe, I, I guess you took from traditional stories about fairyland, like uh, Thomas the Rhymer and, and Tam Lin. Yes, um, which are less folkloric traditional than literary traditional. Like um, the folkloric ones tend to be slightly more peculiar. So yeah, I, I read the Ka Kath Catherine Briggs book about fairies, the, you know, the big compendium. Mm. I can't remember what the name of it. It's a fantastic book. Um, and then promptly discarded most of it as not useful for my purposes that I realised quite soon that mine were those literary theories of Thomas the Rhymer and, you know, Shakespeare and so on. So, Yeah, I thought a very medieval kind of fairy in a way, the people, not these sort of Victorian flower fairy type tiny creatures, but um, something that's much stronger and more powerful and on the same par as, as humans in terms of size, but with yes, that kind yes. of um, ruthlessness, I think that you always get with medieval fairies that they know what they want and they're going to get it. Yes, and that and the, they're, they're resolutely contractual. It's, it's kind of interesting to have people that are, that they are, that they are, it's not just a sense of honor, it's, 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 their kind of addiction to reality that they, you know, that, that if, if there's a contract involved, they have to follow it. It's like, um, it's like instinct. So, yeah, yeah. It's, that's what I always sort of admire about them because in a way, nine times out of 10, the fairies can rely on the humans doing something that, that makes their contract void because they're stupid or foolish or greedy and the fairies can just destroy them or take what they want. But that tenth time, the the human says, "No, you promised this, and this is what you have to give me." And then I'm thinking here about uh, Sir Orfeo, um, the fairy king says, "Yeah, okay, I promised, so you can take your wife back." Yeah, that's that thing that you got me. That you've got to understand their rules in in order to kind of figure out how to live by it. <laughs> yeah, it, it was fun doing that, and uh, and then it was fun, like that whole business of not throwing away the fairy magic like if you mention glamours you've got to say well this is how this works so I've got that I've got a whole chapter towards the end makes it makes the ordinary business of the plot that has to play out in that chapter more interesting that it completely eliminates one of the main characters because of a glamour like they actually are literally in invisible throughout the, <laughs> the whole chapter um and and that was a that was a that was great fun, but yeah, I just thought, well, you can't go around mentioning glamours without saying, and this is what this looks like. I thought the way in which you built various kinds of um, 
I guess magic technology into the secondary world was really interesting that you had problems that the hunter-gatherer society have to have to deal with I guess within that that wonderful natural environment in which they're living and they have sort of different classes of magic that that they employ and it's not just a question of they wave their hands and this thing happens but they have quite um dedicated sort of magical um yeah, devices yeah. yes and they and you know they've got a class of people who know how to operate the you know the uh, force beasts yeah sort of the builders who go off and you know repair the road through the swamp or shift the boulders that have fallen down into the mountain pass or yes like i i like I like fantasy that looks like science fiction. So towards the end of that, you get the idea that actually the fairies have come from somewhere else originally, you know, stolen the territory and made it very different than what it was before by basically terraforming. I mean, you just, you realise that that's what they must have done. So there's a kind of a science fiction underneath the fantasy uh, but yeah, I quite like that, that sort of mixing genres a bit there. What would you say? Oh, no, actually, the next question I wanted to ask was um, alongside that, that secondary world of the fairies, there's really a very strong theological um, debate going on as well in some ways and kind of, I guess, not a million miles away from Philip Pullman's um, rethinking of, of the fall and its implications. Um, and obviously in, in the Vintner's Cut, um, the Vintner's Luck, sorry, uh, you have an angel protagonist as well. Is, is theology something you've always been particularly interested in? Well, I was raised by an um, evangelizing atheist who had, had, was a lapsed Catholic. So my dad was an evangelizing atheist. I don't think there's anything more um, stimulating for your interest in religion as a child than having having a, an evangelizing atheist parent and 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 at the same time my mother was probably she was herself a second generation atheist her father was an atheist possibly possibly his parents were too and so she for her it was all a settled matter you know there was no argument to be had so there was a sort of calm atheism going on in the household and this kind of raucous atheism going on. And he just made religion very interesting. So, of course, you know, I was always reading things. Um, and with, I mean, with the fitness luck, it's very definitely um, coming out of the Christian imagination mm. and that you've got a heaven and a hell, but you don't have anything else noticeable uh, but the absolute book sort of decides that gods are a class of being and that their well-being is dependent on human beings and how, the ways in which they're worshipped which is kind of a parallel to the the sort of badly managed stewardship of human beings of of the planet that's kind of like you can you can make your gods ill and also I was interested in, I thought, well, I'm write, going to write a pagan book, you know, a pagan mm. book, like a, you know what, like I was thinking that. But then I just decided in the end that it was a book in which all the gods were true. So, and they were all more or less equivalent, but rising and falling throughout history, according to 
the kind of energy they were getting from their worshippers. Um, and you, you, you come to understand that that's the way the world's working throughout the book, and then you get to see more or less the beginning of a god, like somebody becomes a god in the course of the book, um, a little god, but I think yes. going somewhere. There's a trajectory. <laughs> so, yeah, a little god yeah. of a, a particular place, isn't it? Whereas yeah. the Christian <laughs> god is, is, I guess, quite a big god, but really quite yes, yeah, The great god of the desert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I was quite not. interested because I had not expected this at all um, to f- suddenly find my my own favorite god, Odin, popping up along with his two fantastic ravens. I love the, the stories. I love the comedy that the, the ravens produce and and the sort of origin story that you have for them. Why Odin in particular, though? Oh, well, OK, so this is my... I've always, no, I was never interested in Odin particularly any more than any other Norse gods. And when I was a child reading mythology all the time, I loved the Greek gods and the, and the, um, the Norse gods. I was like, eh, you know, I could take them or leave them. <laughs> but um, about, I was, would have been the year 2000 or 2001, I was off at um, a, a writer's festival and sleeping very badly because of the different time zones and all the excitement. And I had a dream in which I was in this vast cavernous space and I was about to be shown the God who was in charge of my life. Mm-hmm. And um, I came up to this God who was standing in front of a throne facing away from me and they turned around and I saw a sort of a division or difference in the first thing I glimpsed a division or difference in the face and I had a, a sensation of enormous disappointment that I was about to be shown Janus the two-faced god <laughs> yeah. and for some reason this was something to do with me and then I realized I was looking at a god with one eye and that it was Odin and I was like and I can remember at bre- I got went down to breakfast and I told I told the poets at the table Matthew Sweeney, the Irish one, being one of them, about this dream. And he said, why don't I have dreams like that? That's a poet's dream. Exactly. <laughs> so, well, he yeah, is I'm, the god of poetry. I've always, I know. I've always, yeah, I've always had a, a sort of a... I thought about the dream a lot. I thought about the whole thing of sacrificing an eye for wisdom and, and you know, sacrificing a, a, a kind of a... A, a depth perception for something else, you know, for for ravens, and I just I just thought about it, and and then so when I came to the book, I thought, well, I, I think I'll probably better put Odin in it, but then I was much more interested in the ravens than in Odin. <laughs> yeah, so in, in the end, he he doesn't turn up as much as you might have expected once once he makes his first appearance. I. I thought we would see a bit more of him, but his agents are there, aren't they, all the time? Yeah, his agents are there and, you know, they're they're about to, you know, abandon him. I mean, yeah, Odin's a, Odin's a, a, a god in the process of being corrupted by by worshippers. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, um, I had some fun with that. I think Odin seems like someone who is, quite well suited to the modern world in a way because he's ready to do any kind of deals to maintain his power. Terribly interesting god and often turns up in in modern stories but of course there is the unfortunate um, 
you know, revival of of the sort of love of Norse gods and people tattooing Vulk nuts on them and the white supremacists. So, you know, I was aware of that, which is why I kind of commented on the book. I thought, well, what would this mean for Odin if Odin had unfortunately managed to attract all these white suprema attract all these white supremacists who were I bookmarked not that months. paragraph um because I'm I'm writing a book about the reception of old Norse myth myself. And I thought, yes, that is is what I want about these kind of right right-wing lunatics who adopt Odinism <laughs> without having any kind of real sense of what it's all about. <laughs> so yeah. Before we move on to the uh, kind of really large question about the major themes of the novel, I just wanted to come back to the, the question of, of your being a New Zealand writer and the kind of, in a way I was asking myself, why an English and European imaginary and not something that's set in New Zealand or drawing upon New Zealand myths? Oh, I can't suddenly appropriate, appropriate Polynesian mythology. Mm. So, there, so there's that. I mean, I, I could be a consumer of those stories, but I don't think I necessarily get to dabble my feet. But I, I sort of end up with these non-New Zealand books becoming highly visible, whereas my last book, Wake, the sort of horror science fiction, which was published by Corsia and, and did reasonably well in the UK, um, it's completely New Zealand, you know, it's set in New Zealand and all but one of its characters is a New Zealander. And uh, yeah, the, 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 the joy of being able to do a contemporary New Zealand book. Um, but then I, I like, I just have much of a book and it has to come out the way I want it to. And obviously I, I just wanted to do a book that had fairyland in it. And if you going to do fairyland you really have got to get yourself over to uh, you know the British Isles my grandmother I think in a way your fairyland but I was asking myself where is New Zealand because in in the kind of real world um, Karen goes over there briefly and her father is is knocking around in the the southern hemisphere appearing in this kind of Lord of the Rings Game of Thrones mashup I guess um but then it struck me that actually fairyland seemed to me very much like New Zealand must have been before people were there. Um, yeah, a like, huge range of, of different habitats. Uh, yeah, um, yes, my fairyland, you know, I, I wasn't going to not use the landscapes I love. So my fairyland's New Zealand, yeah, definitely. Different bits of New Zealand with a little bit of... Um, some lagoons and Samoa thrown in. So, yeah. <laughs> it was the boiling mud pools. I mean, it was the, the hot pools, doesn't no, it? I, 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 I thought, oh, yes, yes. That's yeah, when you really So you talked a bit about your interest in, in what we're doing to the planet. The kind of huge environmental theme is, is one of the things that the book is about. Are there other themes that you felt that you were kind of unpacking? Well, writing a book with a hidden intention, which is about a hidden object and has a person in it with a spell on it that hides them, having had the sort of hidden things built into the plot, I realised quite soon that I was going to have a hidden theme and the hidden theme was the sort of ecological theme. Mm. Um, And how I wanted that to 
play out for the reader. And it's risky because some people sort of rebel against it because they go, oh, well, nothing like that can ever happen. Um, that's just wish fulfillment. I wanted it to be for wish fulfillment. I wanted it to look like wish fulfillment because I wanted people to think about what they're wishing. And instead of thinking, well, what say the fairies and you know a god and some ravens and so on can save us, to think who is there who can save us? Because of course we can be saved. Our governments could save us if they yeah. acted like gods. <laughs> but instead they act like idiots <laughs> well your government i think i'd have more faith in than shareholders. <laughs> um i was struck by the theme of loss not just planetary loss but kind of personal loss as well there's a lot of mourning going on in the book isn't there well i mean the the protagonist my scholarly hero taryn who we haven't even talked about um she's 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 she made the book possible and that she, you know, plot-wise, because she ends up being possessed and it looks like she's being possessed. I mean, for, for people who aren't, who think that, oh, that means it's because she's sinful enough to do that and is her sin big enough, but actually, no, it's just the demons are trying to find out something she knows, so they're being opportunistic. She's just bad enough to get a demon in her. Yeah. <laughs> so, um. But yes, yeah, she's she's taken revenge for the death of her sister, for the for the murder of her sister, because she didn't think that the the man concerned was punished enough, and that's bad. But she never repents from killing the man. She repents from using someone else to kill the man, which is the you know which is her her sin. So she spends the whole book. Um, facing the consequences of her actions, taking revenge, and never getting properly reconciled to the loss of her sister until the very end when she mm. she more or less fills the hole in her heart with other people, um, which is probably the way that grief like that works. That's a lovely way of putting it. Um, I must say, as filling it with other people, um, because I guess there is no... The, the 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 narrative offers possibilities of a much more kind of you know christian reconciliation i can see why as a, a, an atheist you might leave that aside well, i'm not really an atheist i was yeah. just raised one <laughs> well raised okay um yeah. a, a questioning um well at least somebody who's not completely steeped in in the mechanisms of of Catholic theology as providing all the answers to this kind of thing. But yeah, I think that that's, that's very striking in a way um, that what might be a kind of feel good um, moment that could have been a feel good climax there comes up against a kind of reality about what's possible with the afterlife, let's say. Yes, yes. And you get you when you get an and afterlife, you get um, you get purgatory, which is, yeah, <laughs> I I was very proud of my version of purgatory. It's a really recognizable place in a way, isn't it? And it, it's a kind of um, antithesis of of fairyland, 
it's got hospitals and railways and the kind of darkness and and but not souls burning in in agony or trying to be purged of their sins there's just that kind of almost kafka-esque notion of what's purgatorial yeah um unwieldy bureaucracy and invisible bureaucrats and um and nobody helps anyone else they're always just trying to work out their own problems there's a sort of a solitary solipsistic um chasing of something to solve their problems which is purgatorial <laughs> you know, it really is recognized they think they need yeah um yes. you know I, I, I had a lot of a lot of fun with purgatory uh yeah it's a really big book the absolute book isn't it i'm carrying it around for while I was reading it was kind of arm stretching did did you know always how it was going to end up or did your ideas change as you were writing it I knew where it wanted to where I wanted to take it in terms of the the sort of things it had to say about um the world needing saving uh but you know, you always think of better ways of solving the book's problems as you go along. I mean, I'm I'm not a I'm not a person who plots things out. I kind uh-huh, of you have a big have, I have, a, have an idea and then I and then I kind of follow my nose, and um, I usually have a good satisfactory a satisfactory ending and a satisfactory you know, course for the plot at a certain point, um, and then and then then as I go, I deviate when I think of something better. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I just do, I knew most of my decisions were aesthetic ones, like that people will keep turning up though, so that, you know, the the man who sets fire to Taryn's grandfather's library turns up completely unexpectedly, you know, towards the end of the book. And the mule skinner who kind of th- threatens to turn up at the beginning and doesn't turn up and doesn't turn up and doesn't turn up and then suddenly and then... turns up like extremely alarmingly and then when it is eventually comprehensively got rid of turns up again <laughs> like you know the horror movie like Carrie leaping out of her grave more or less so I wanted to do those things I wanted things to come around yeah yeah, I really like that type. Well, particularly when um, when Jacob, not Jacob, the um, the fire starter in the grandfather's library came back again at oh, yes, the yes, end yes. of the book. Yes, I was delighted. Battle, battle. Yeah, That's, that was him. Yeah. Um, and the the mule skinner himself, um, I find absolutely terrifying character. And I think. When I was reading that kind of central sequence where Taryn is, is, let's say, placed in considerable danger by the mule skinner, I, I didn't at that point know that you also wrote in, in the horror genre. And I was really taken by the, the way in which the kind of mechanics of the, the horrible fate had been thought out by by the mule skinner but obviously by you as well yeah uh, that was that was sort of my um the whole chapter's kind of a mini thriller inside the thing was like and here is elizabeth doing a thriller you know so i was channeling lee child at that point i think <laughs> you know that the, there are mechanics to the horrible fate you know 
someone has a plan and this is the awful thing they're going to do and it doesn't look like he can get out of it. And honestly, I didn't know how I was going to get Taryn out of the problem there. And then I I realised I was writing a fantasy book. (laughs) So, yes, you have a kind of, um, well, deus ex machina might be one way of putting (laughs) it. But I I thought that was uh, a remarkable way of resolving that that particular situation. Um, Very unexpected. (laughs) Extremely unexpected. Um, And I suddenly thought, well, wait a minute, is is this actually, um, is Peter Pan in here somewhere? (laughs) Or was that? a moment, but like, no, it's the shapeshifter. (laughs) (laughs) it took me quite a while to figure out the shapeshifter's role in the whole thing and I was going hmm how unlikely is that I see (laughs) so what what are you working on at the moment what's coming next I'm finishing a young adult book and I say this advisedly because I've written young adult books I'm dream hunter and dream quake that you know the dream hunter duet and and then mortal fire over a number of years um, with other books interspersed, and during that time, young adult fantasies changed a great deal. So, um, so I've written this this school story thriller science fiction evening, um, which I'm quite pleased with, but it's probably very much a borderline, like a older teenagers, not because of its content, but probably because of its worldview yeah and do you think there's a really strong I mean I guess when you and I were growing up young adult wasn't even a recognizable sub-branch of literature was it you you read children's books and then you discovered what kind of books you could read as a teenager that made sense to you which is when I read The Master and Margarita and got very confused by it but I have gone back to it many times since then um, do you, is there a huge difference writing young adult fantasy, do you think, from writing more adult fantasy? Um, I mean, not I, just in terms of, of less swearing and, and less explicit sex, possibly. Yes, I mean, yeah, well, yes. But the, the the two things that I always think of is that it, it has a young adult at the very centre of the story. You've got to have, you know, the protagonist should be a young adult in a young adult book. And, and my rule is not to deprive the reader of hope. This mm. is one thing you can't do in a book for young people. I, I just I, I just regard that as wrong. <laughs> so I'm not doing it. <laughs> yeah. So even when I'm going, oh, I could end this really badly, I'm like, can I just hold that thought for a moment? <laughs> yeah, I think... Um... That must be a good rule, I think. I, I suppose young adult fantasy is more at heart about maturing and growing into yourself. And there must be hope for your young adult protagonist if they don't meet some horrible fate, uh, that they're going to end up somewhere in a better place than where they, they started. Yeah, I, I think I've, I've kind of had a thing about people meeting horrible fate in some book for some time where the even if the bad things are happening, if people don't disgrace themselves and manage to look after others around them and, you know, remain pretty much true to their to their own 
um, hopes for themselves, then that works out. So you can actually throw a lot of things at your young adult characters and um, just they they muddle their way through in, in ways that aren't deeply shaming to them. Yeah, that, so that's pretty much the way it's playing out, not depriving them of hope in this book. I'm not depriving them of hope because they can still respect themselves when they come out the other side. <laughs> yeah. And as a school story, is it is it a, a a day school where there's a kind of playoff between no, the home no, environment, no, or is a, it a boarding a, school story? It's a boarding school because, of course, you know, I I never got near such a place in my life, you know. <laughs> so it's like I don't come from that class, so I was like, ooh, I could do a boarding school, and and it, and it's sort of a school with special children. Um, that not that they all are, so. Yeah, so it plays with that, and then it and then it kind of turns into a, a thriller, pretty much. Right, losing the school, but yeah, I'm and always yeah. really interested in school kings, stories. Kings of, this, kings of this world is its title. Kings, kings of this world. And and when is it? You're still in the process of finishing it, so I I'm finishing it. So yeah, then I'll yeah. send it off to my agent, and we'll see where we go from there. <laughs> I never know. Well, that sounds really. That's what sounds like one to add to my collection of uh, fantasy boarding school stories because I'm always really interested in in. Yeah, I think it was why I picked up the first copy of um, indeed the first edition of Harry Potter for a young friend of mine because I just thought boarding school story. Ha! What's not to like about that? Yes, and I'm really interested I, I, in the I ways those schools affect or, or are built in a way. What the rules are within those schools? Yeah, there's some very good animes based on you know school stories, and and then there was always Diana Wynne Jones's Witch Week. Mm. Yeah, which <laughs> fantastic magical school story. Yeah, very fond yeah. of that one. And I guess the boarding school takes the the young person away from the parents and puts them with the peers. But then you've got kind yeah. of surrogate parents in the in the teacher. Yeah, but these guys, their parents are so famous. There's no getting away from them. Guys, <laughs> 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 having fun with that too. Yeah. Okay, so they're all uh, busy in uh, Lord of the Rings type movies, are they? <laughs> yeah, or, you know, being te technocrats or, you know, have been responsible for a, a large percentage of the, the GDP of their small countries, <laughs> those kinds of things. You know, it's quite, yeah, it's quite fun. And of course, that's exactly the kind of kid who does get sent off to boarding school because you're right, the parents <laughs> are busy doing all kinds of other things. That's right.